Welcome to Accessible Art History, the podcast, the best place for art history lovers or anyone that is curious. My name is Annalisa, and I'm here to share an incredible work with you. Just a quick reminder before we get started. All sources and images will be posted on the Accessible Art History blog. You can find the link in the episode description as well as on our Instagram at accessible.art.history. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get started. For our first episode in Ancient Rome, we are going to be doing things a bit differently. Instead of focusing on a single work, we are going to examine a single site. Pompeii was an ancient Roman town that was buried in volcanic ash in the first century CE. Due to Mount Vesuvius's violent eruption, Pompeii became a time capsule filled with knowledge about art and civilization. One of the most important things art historians were able to learn from Pompeii is how painting developed in ancient Rome. We are going to go over the four different styles in this episode. Before we get to the painting styles though, it's important that we learn the history of Pompeii. Located near the modern city of Naples, Pompeii is nestled in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius. Due to previous eruptions, the soil in the area was extremely fertile. Towns were built close in order to take advantage of this and the area became known for its agricultural prosperity. It was first settled around the 8th century BCE by the Oscans, a central Italian people. Over the centuries, Pompeii changed hands between the Greeks, Etruscans, Sarcans, and finally, the Romans. Under Roman rule, which started around 290 BCE, Pompeii became an important city. It served as a midpoint between the Bay of Naples and the capital of Rome, so it was a strategic rest stop for many goods that were brought in from far corners of the world. This brought commercial opportunities to Pompeii, allowing for growth and prosperity. Eventually this, and its location, led to Pompeii becoming a resort town. The who's who of ancient Rome built their villas here. At the time of the volcanic eruption, about 20,000 people called this town home. The most remarkable event of Pompeii's history occurred on August 24, 79 CE. Thanks to Pliny the Younger, modern-day historians are able to understand what happened. Earthquakes had been shaking the city for a few days, but residents did not think much of it. It was a common occurrence, so it didn't cause too much concern. In hindsight, this is a bit strange because a large earthquake leveled the city in 62 CE, and it was still being rebuilt 17 years later. When Mount Vesuvius finally erupted, it spewed a 21-mile-tall cloud of molten rocks, pumice, superheated gas, and ash into the air. Experts have estimated that, in order to create a cloud this large, Mount Vesuvius had to have exploded with 100 times the force of an atomic bomb. Pyroclastic flow and hot ash raced down the mountain and towards the city. Some people had heeded the warnings of the earthquakes and were able to escape, but those who didn't were covered in 19 to 23 feet, or 6 to 7 meters, of volcanic debris. In total, around 1,500 people lost their lives in this incident. That makes it the deadliest volcanic eruption in European history. In many people's minds, once Pompeii was covered, it was completely forgotten about. But this is not true. Titus, who ruled as emperor at this time, sent out recovery parties to survey the damage and look for survivors. Archaeologists have discovered their tunnels and digging efforts. There is also evidence that looters dug their way into the rubble to find any treasures that the dead left behind. Over the centuries, Pompeii slipped from the world's mind, though. Two additional eruptions in the 5th and 6th centuries CE further buried the city and finally erased it from memory. About a thousand years later, Italian architect Domenico Fontana discovered a few paintings and inscriptions, but didn't alert officials. 
In fact, his connection wasn't even discovered until much later when his personal letters were read by historians. In 1689, about a hundred years after Fontana's discovery, Francesco Pichetti found an interesting wall inscription in the area that was once Pompeii. However, because knowledge of the city had been lost to the ravages of time, Pichetti assumed it was a reference to the famous 1st century BCE general Pompey the Great. It was known that he has a massive villa somewhere in the vicinity of Naples, and Pichetti thought he had finally found a clue to its location. Besides 79, 1748 is the most important year in Pompeian history. This was the year that it was finally discovered. King Charles of Bourbon, the Spanish king of Naples, wanted to beautify his new kingdom. He chose a site near Mount Vesuvius to build a summer palace. However, when workers were digging the foundation, they discovered the remains of Herculaneum. This was another city close to Pompeii that had also been decimated by Mount Vesuvius. They called in engineers to help excavate it. This gave them the idea to also search the area for more ancient cities. After some more digging, workers found Pompeii. It took a bit to realize they had found the city, but soon inscriptions revealed the answer. For about a century, digs took place haphazardly. Officials were more concerned with finding treasures to fill their museums with than preserving the city itself. Thankfully, in 1860, Italian archaeologist Giuseppe Fiorelli was bought in to head the project. He knew that it was essential to preserve the city because it was the best chance they had ever had to study ancient Rome. In order to keep the archaeological survey organized, Fiorelli created a revolutionary system. He divided the city into nine sections. Each of those sections were divided into blocks. And finally, each house in that block was given its own number. Therefore, each and every artifact discovered in Pompeii would have a unique numerical designation. This would allow Fifurchu archaeologists to know exactly where the piece came from and discover patterns and other useful information. The system is so effective that it's still in use today, and Fiorelli is considered one of the fathers of archaeology. He was also the person who came up with the idea to fill the volcanic ash shells that covered the Romans with plaster to preserve what once held their bodies. By the 1990s, about two-thirds of the city had been excavated. In 1997, Pompeii was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site due to the incredible wealth of knowledge it brought to us about ancient Rome. Today, it is one of the most popular tourist sites in Italy. About 2.5 million people a year travel to see the beauty of this city. Besides giving us a first-hand account of the eruption, Pliny the Younger also described the techniques that Roman artists used while painting. The most common medium employed was fresco. This is when wet plaster was applied to a wall and the design was quickly sketched out. As the plaster dried, pigment was added so that the two parts fused together. In ancient Rome, the plaster was layered with lead sheets, sometimes up to seven times. This would prevent any moisture from seeping through and destroying the art. Plus, it gives a whole new meaning to the term lead paint. In order to create pigments for the fresco, Roman artists turned to the natural world. Black was made from carbon taken from burnt wood. Yellow and red could be made from ochre, which is impure iron ore. Red could also be achieved by burning white lead or grinding cinnabar, a type of mercury sulfide. This was quite dangerous because both are very poisonous. Blue was made by mixing sand and copper together and then heating the mixture until it turned to the desired shade. Finally, purple was made by boiling sea snails. This process was long and difficult, making the pigment incredibly expensive. It's no surprise then why it became associated with royalty. In ancient Rome, we see a shift towards art for art's sake, but like in the past, it did serve a more practical function as well. In this case, Roman painting helped to alleviate some of the problems with Roman residential construction. 
there were almost always windowless rooms and built around a closed floor plan. This made the space very claustrophobic. So to combat this, the rooms were filled with paintings. It helped to give them personality and to prevent things from becoming too cramped. In addition, it was a way to identify rooms, which was handy for guests. Now that we've got all the background information taken care of, we're gonna go into the four distinct painting styles that developed during the Roman period. But first, we're gonna take a quick break. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now that we're back, let's go right into the first style of painting. Also known as the structural or masonry style, this type of painting focused on creating marble panels out of paint. It dates from around 200 BCE to 60 BCE, or the Late Republic period. In order to achieve this style, stucco was applied to the wall and shaped into a raised panel. This would give the appearance of a piece of stone installed into the wall. Then, the paint would be carefully applied in order to create something that looked to be expensive marble. The most detailed panels would be at eye level, while details faded at the top and bottom of the wall. The first style was heavily influenced by Hellenistic Greek culture. During the late Republic period, Greece was idolized. People hoped that by painting marble onto the walls, their homes would look like the beautiful villas of Ptolemaic Egypt and the Greek Isles. The more colorful and detailed the panels were, the wealthier the homeowner. This style was all about creating an illusion of wealth and sophistication. Towards the end of the Republic era and into the early days of the empire, the idea of creating illusions with paint expanded even farther. Also known as the second style, this type of illusionism added architectural details, shading, perspective, and still life. This was especially useful in making the space seem larger than it actually was. Instead of spending money to add columns, honeovers would have them painted on. Sometimes plant life was added around the border to give viewers the feeling that they were outside. One of the most interesting elements to develop out of this style was the use of still life. By using perspective techniques, painters would make it appear that tables, vases, and bowls were coming out of the wall. Not only did this give the room more depth, but these objects could be painted in a way that made them look costly. In case you haven't realized it yet, painting styles up to this point in ancient Roman history were all about creating the illusion of and or showcasing wealth. The third style developed in a fairly short period of time about 20 BCE to 20 CE. It essentially follows the reign of the first Roman Emperor Augustus. Also described as the ornamental style, this type of art represents a shift in painting. Illusionism was no longer the goal. Instead, it was all about beauty and decoration. Typically, the wall was first painted in a solid monochromatic tone. The most popular shades were black, white, and red. Although, at the tail end of the period, we do see cooler colors like blue and green pop up. Architectural and plant details were still used, but they were added to frame the space as opposed to creating an illusion of a larger room. 
The largest shift between the previous styles and the third style is the fact that this is the first instance that we find landscape and figural painting. They were quite small, only taking up a part of the space delineated by columns and or plants. It was simple and elegant way to decorate the space, which was fashionable at this point in history. One fun fact about this period, in 31 BCE, Emperor Augustus defeated Cleopatra and officially added Egypt to the Roman Empire. It was around this time that art historians start to see plants and animals native to Egypt popping up in Roman paintings. According to the Met Museum, if the third style is mannerism, then the fourth style is the Baroque. In essence, this is when art becomes intricate and dramatic. The fourth style started around 20 CE and lasted until Pompeii was destroyed in 79 CE. It is important to note that art historians and archaeologists have not been able to define a development of style after the destruction of Pompeii, but the paintings were still in use as an artistic medium. In the fourth style, the landscape and narrative scenes we saw in the previous styles are expounded upon. The use of light, shadow, and perspective were explored and utilized far more. In fact, the next time we see this level of detail isn't until the 16th century. These scenes were often framed by architectural details, especially similar to those we see in Style 2. At the top and bottom of the walls, archaeologists often uncover fake marble panels, just like those first conceived in Style 1. In essence, the fourth style is a combination of all three previous styles. The artist took the best elements out of each period and utilized them to create a stunning final product. The city of Pompeii is a rich time capsule that has taught us an incredible amount about life and art in ancient Rome. Through the tragedy of Mount Vesuvius's eruption, the town was preserved for nearly 2,000 years. After it was uncovered, art historians were able to classify Roman painting in a way that helped them to understand the motivations for its creation. Make sure to tune in next week when we discuss another famous Roman work, the Column of Trajan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Accessible Art History, the podcast. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at accessible.art.history for updates and keep an eye out for our next episode. They drop every Monday on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>